Good to see everyone again this morning. Thank you all for being here. This morning I want to uh, continue in a lesson that we started last week. This was to be a two-part lesson on uh, by whose authority. And we looked last week at uh, King David and some of his experiences, and we looked at the idea that David had to learn some lessons the hard way, uh, so to speak. When David got ready to move the ark uh, to, to Jerusalem, they built a new cart, and they, they put the ark on the cart, and they were, they were dancing and singing, and they were so grateful as they were moving, moving the cart uh, and with the ark on it back to, or, or to Jerusalem. And at one point, the, the cart was upset because the ox stumbled, and this man Uzzah put out his hand to, to, to steady the ark, and God struck him dead. And the reason that he did is because God had indicated how the ark was to be carried. It was to be constructed in a way that had these rings on it, and these poles would go through the rings, and the Levites would carry the ark. And so David realized later on that he had made a mistake in, in what they had done because they didn't follow God's command, even to the point of, of just moving the ark. Later, we, we read about David and wanting to, to build uh, the, the temple, a house for, for God. And he had it in his mind to do that, but God came to him and said, David, you're not going to be the one that's going to build my house. It's going to be your son Solomon. So David had these ideas about things to do, but they weren't in uh, accordance with, with God's will. And then we also read about uh, when temple worship was uh, instituted, how uh, instruments of music were added to the worship of God, and that was divinely inspired of David. And, and later on, Hezekiah, the king Hezekiah, as he's trying to, to, to persuade the children of Israel to, to reinstitute temple worship and to rededicate themselves, he, he pointed to the fact that there's these musical instruments that were to be added according to what David had been shown. And so the point we get there is that under the law of Moses, there was no uh, musical instruments in the worship. They were added later under the temple worship, not the tabernacle worship. And that was to, to indicate to us that God is in control of these things. That God is the one who dictates when and how these things are going to take place. And it's not up to us, not to up, up to our think-sos, uh, to add to or to take away from God's will. And so we summed up last week by looking at these uh, three points, that God expects his laws to be followed. We look there in 1 Kings 9, and verses 1 through 9, as, as God is speaking to David's son Solomon and tells him that if you'll keep my commandments, if you walk in my statutes, I will bless you, and, and your kingdom will last forever, and you'll always be one of your descendants upon the throne. Of course, we know that that fell apart very quickly under King Solomon, unfortunately, and there were consequences for that, ultimately, ultimately leading to the downfall of Israel and the taking away of them into captivity. Same thing is said in the New Testament, Matthew 28, 18, there, beginning, where Jesus says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says, to go therefore into the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, 
and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. So Jesus tells his disciples that you go teach them what I have commanded you. So God expects his laws to be followed. And man's rules are of no account. David had some great ideas, but they didn't matter. Because it was what God had said. What God had instituted that would, was to be followed. And there in Matthew 15, uh, as Jesus quotes from Isaiah, he says there in verse 9 about the idea that they're teaching as doctrine. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. So we might have a lot of preconceived, a lot of things that we might think would go well in our worship to God, but they're in vain if they don't come from God. And the last point there, and this is important in what we're going to talk about this morning, silence does not mean approval. When God authorizes something, and when he dictates something, then that excludes everything else. And we looked at that, the law of exclusion there. We saw that in Genesis 6 and verse 14, as, as God tells Noah to construct the ark out of gopher wood, then all other kinds of wood were excluded. So that's very important in understanding as God um, tells us uh, specific things that we are to do, then that excludes everything else. Think how big the Bible would be if God had to exclude everything. So the, just the, from the very idea of, of management, uh, of the language and of uh, resources, God's authority says that if I say this, it excludes everything else. And that's important with what we're going to talk about this morning. And so what we want to do is take this principle about how God operates, that he expects his laws to be followed, that our think-sos are of no account to him, and, and we need to respect the things that he hasn't said, respect his silence, and we're going to apply that to... to um, New Testament worship and to Christian living in some examples here. So I want to start off with this. So instruments in worship. And this comes from uh, um, the idea of carrying this over about the instruments that were used under the law of Moses in worship. So let's take that through and see how this plays out. Let's understand first that as we go that um, obviously... We're no longer under the law of Moses. In Matthew 5 and verse 17, Jesus talks about how, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, no, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. You know, it wasn't that he was just to, to, to say that the law of Moses didn't mean anything. It meant a lot. This, this is what God had commanded for his children, how to worship him. But Jesus came to fulfill that law. Galatians 3 and verses 24 and 25, what we, we just read there, that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, but we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So we're no longer under that old law of Moses. So if we want to know how to worship God and be pleasing to him, we have to look to the New Testament. We have to look to the law of Christ in order to be pleasing to God. So what does it tell us in the New Testament about how we are to musically worship God. Well, the only instrument in the New Testament, the only instrument in the New Testament, 
or the only way in which we are to worship God is to sing. There are some nine verses in the New Testament that talk about singing. A few others uh, are mentioning, but these are the ones we typically talk about when we talk about singing. There's examples in here. For instance, Jesus and his disciples uh, on the night that he is going to be betrayed. Uh, right after they concluded the Last Supper, it says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Both Matthew and Mark record that. Um, another example, in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, Paul and Silas were in, were in jail there, and they began singing hymns of praise to God. Romans 15 and verse 9, as, as Paul is laying out the argument about the Gentiles being welcomed into the kingdom as well as Jews, uh, it says, for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing your name. Um, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, as Paul is talking about the proper use of the spiritual gifts that they've been blessed with, he talks about that you have to be engaged with your mind and your spirit in what you're doing. Otherwise, you're just, you're not doing it uh, for the right reasons and it's, it's vain to you. But he says amongst that, he says, I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Um, jump down to uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. Uh, it says, uh, I will proclaim your name to the brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So there we have examples of people singing praises to God. But we also have instructions to do just that. In James chapter 5 and verse 13, James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. And then the two verses that we use um, most often in, in defense of or in uh, demonstrating that God has instructed us simply to sing are Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. In Colossians 3.16, very similar. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. So these are the, the places in the New Testament where we see either by example or by instruction that we are to sing to God. So let's focus in on just a couple of those verses there, the ones that we usually use for instruction of singing, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, Colossians 3.16, and all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Very simple, very simple teaching. We're, we're speaking to one another. Why are we doing that? We're admonishing one another with the things that we are saying in our singing. That's the reason, according to this passage. And we're singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Very simple. So the commandment there is to sing. And also, um, you can make the argument, and this is a good argument to make, that we're also to make melody. Because in Ephesians 5.19, it says they're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. We'll come back to that second part here in just a moment. 
But look what it says there. Again, what are we doing? We're speaking to one another. So that lets us know a couple of things in very simple terms that the words of what we are saying are what's important. So we don't hum, we don't whistle, we don't um, do any other thing other than speak the words because that's what's important in our singing is the words that we are saying and also to one another. So it's not proper for us to, to listen to someone else sing, for example, a choir. If we're listening to a choir, then they're singing to us, but we're not speaking to them. Or a soloist. It's not proper for us to listen to a soloist. That's one person singing. The commandment is one to another. But the idea here about this making melody with your heart, you know, um, it's interesting the way that this is put together. So there's a distinction that Paul is drawing here between singing and making melody with your heart. So that whole word there um, that's being translated into making melody is the Greek word solo. And it's an interesting, uh, the way this is put together. Again, there's a distinction between singing and making melody. Solo, the word that is being translated there, means to pluck off or to pull out or to cause to vibrate by touching or to twang. And then 2A, I think, is the, 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 real one, the real important one here. To touch or strike the chord, to twang the strings of a musical instrument so that they gently vibrate. There's a couple other things here, to play a stringed instrument, to sing to the music of the harp. And then Thayer goes on and says well, in the New Testament to sing a hymn. But I think there's a, because there's that distinction that Paul makes between singing and making melody, there's a distinction between singing, which is the Greek word ado, and making melody, which is the Greek word solo. So there is a distinction that Paul's making. So he says there that we are to sing and make melody with our heart. So how do you pluck the strings of your heart? Well, it would follow that that's without some kind of major surgery or some terrible injury, that you probably don't want to do that. You probably don't want to reach in and touch your heart. So we've got to think spiritually. So what does that mean? Well, singing and making melody with your heart to God. So it's the spiritual side of this that we're talking about. We're singing on the physical side, but in, in, in calling this to mind, Paul is, to, is letting us know that it has to be that, that spiritual as well. As he mentioned over there in 1 Corinthians 14, I will sing with the mind, I will sing with the heart also. So that's the, 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 the connection there, or sing with my soul also. It's, that's the connection in that it's a physical, but it's also the spiritual. That's what we're doing. We're singing and we're, we're spiritually engaged in what we're doing. But again, there's no other instrument that is, that is called out here in this. There's singing and there's making melody with our heart. That's the only thing that is called out. And there, you'll find nothing else in the New Testament that tells us that we are to bring any other kind of mechanical instrument into the worship. Paul makes mention of mechanical instruments in 1 Corinthians 13 and in chapter 14. But he doesn't say that these are to be included in the worship. He's using them as illustrations. So just like for the law of Moses, God didn't specify uh, instrumental, music until, instrumental music until the temple worship. And then it was authorized. 
the New Testament, it just tells us to sing. And there is no other command. There is no other command to bring anything else into the, the worship other than our voices and making melody with our hearts. So that follows the pattern of God expects his commandments to be, uh, to be followed, man's thinking. Well, if we brought in a, a piano, it might sound better. If we brought in an organ, it might sound better. Well, that's our thinking. That's not God's thinking. And when it says sing, then that excludes everything else. We shouldn't look for anything else unless there's something later on that would supplant that or, or take that out of the way. But there's not in the New Testament. So this excludes every other kind of music making in worship to God. Let's apply this to another um, aspect, and that is congregational benevolence. Look with me, uh, be turning to Acts chapter 4 uh, with me, if you will. Acts chapter 4. So there's a principle, a couple of principles laid down about free will offering and needy saints that we need to explore. In Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse uh, 32, it says there, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things uh, were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as they had need. So in this passage, there's the idea, there's one place, and we'll look at another one in just a moment, the idea of a free will offering, so these people, they said they didn't claim to own anything. So they, they sold their possessions and they came and they just laid the money at the apostles' feet. So that's the idea of a free will offering. They were not forced to do this. They did it of their own accord. And what then were those monies used for? Well, it says that they were distributed to all as any who had need. So there's the, the principle of free will offering and needy saints. Look in another place with me. Go to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, this same idea is expressed in a little bit different way. Paul is writing to the Romans here and telling them about his travel plans as he's making his way. Verse 25 of Romans 15, it says, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So here again, the, these men and women of Macedonia and Achaia have made a contribution of their free will, and it is going to be distributed, given to those needy saints in Jerusalem. And Paul has been entrusted to take that money with him to Jerusalem. Free will offering, needy saints. So, Scripture refines this a little bit more for us. Go with me now to 1 Corinthians 16. So we have this, uh, this laid down, this principle for us, but, but the Scriptures refine it just a little bit more for us on both sides of this. 
as Paul is giving instructions here to the Corinthian brethren in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2, familiar passage for us here. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. So again, here is Paul saying, you lay aside and, and, and save this as you have prospered. He doesn't give them an amount. He doesn't give them a percentage. He doesn't give them uh, any kind of dictate or any kind of formula by which to, to come up with this. He says, as you have prospered. So again, here's the free will offered, refined just a little bit. And it tells us that on the first day of the week to do this. So by example, we understand that that's why we take the collection when we do on the first day of the week. Each of us, by our own free will, have made an offering to God financially in the money that we put into this offering plate, which then goes into the general treasury of this congregation. So that is the free will offering, and it's refined in that we know the specific time that we can make that contribution, and we know what the monies are going to be used for. And what the monies are going to be used for are the needy saints. And this gets further refined in passages such as 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5. Let's go there. 1 Timothy 5. Now Paul is making some um, application about how the church ought to treat widows. And within this, we see some principles that are important for us to understand about needy saints. Remember those two examples we looked at in Acts 4 and 15, that people were freely giving of what they had and the contribution, the monies collected were going to those who had need. This principle, again, further refined in 1 Timothy 5. Look at first in verse 8. It says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What does that tell us? That tells us that we, that our first um, financial uh, line of defense, our first financial um, uh, requirements of this earth, not uh, of God, but of this earth, is we take care of our own. We take care of our own household. That's the principle that's laid down here. If we have means, widow or whoever that might be, orphan, um, someone who is, has health problems, if we have the opportunity and, the, and the, the means, then we take care of them. That's that principle that's laid down here. Paul then goes forward here in explaining and, and qualifying widows in those who, it says in verse 9, let the widow be put on the list. In other words, if the church is going to provide for a widow, she has to meet these qualifications. And if she doesn't, if you look there in verse 16, if a woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them. Again, this falls back to the individual. If you have the means and there's some in your care, you are to take care of them. And this is what's important. It says there in the middle of verse 16, And let not the church be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So the church is not to be burdened with those who can otherwise be taken care of by other individuals. 
In other words, they're not, truly, they're not needy when it comes down to what the church can do for them. The church, the, the needy saints further refined, is that the church is not to be burdened with those who can be taken care of by other people. So we have free will offering, and then we have needy saints. This widows indeed helps us to understand that there is a qualification for those who need to be helped. If they're not helped by their own family or those who have need, then the church can step in and be benevolent to them. But that's it. The church is limited in its, in its benevolence. It's not open to helping anybody and anybody that would come uh, to us and ask for, uh, for money. Because think about the ramifications of what that would mean. How quickly would our treasury be depleted if we were to give money to everyone that came along? The church's responsibility are for those who truly have the need. So God has given the commandments. He expects them to be followed. Our think so is, well, we think, well, we can use uh, the money for, for this or that over there. Well, Scripture says otherwise. And God expects his commandments to be followed. And by telling us these needy saints, then that excludes everything else. Same principle applies. Let's look at one other place where we can make an application. Common meals versus the Lord's Supper. Uh, go with me to, uh, back to Acts chapter 2 now, Acts chapter 2. So, there is confusion uh, within the scriptures, that, or, or the way people read scriptures, about conflating common meals with the Lord's Supper. And a lot of times, the term breaking bread is used to describe both. We have to look in the context and see what exactly is being spoken of here. So we need to separate that out because putting them together has some, uh, some pretty bad consequences if we're not careful. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, says, um, And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So within this text, we see a separation. Back there in verse 46, it continued one mind in the temple. Now these were Jews that were being converted, right? So they, this is the day of Pentecost that um, we're speaking of here particularly. But day by day, then going forward, they were meeting together and they were in the temple about um, spiritual things. But it says they're breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness. So the meal there that's being spoken of there is a common meal of just breakfast, lunch, or dinner, as we would deem them. Just going to, from house to house and sharing meals together. This is not partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's mentioned here because the Lord's Supper is only taken on the first day of the week. And this says going from day, from day to day. So these are obviously common meals that are being spoken of here. Um, so now let's talk about the Lord's Supper. Now let's look at a couple of ways that we can describe that. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 11. Stick with me. All this is going to come together as we draw to a conclusion here. 
The Lord's Supper is distinct from just a common meal, and this is the best place to go uh, to make that distinction, the 1 Corinthians 11, what Paul has to say in, in correcting the Corinthian brethren. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took what? Took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is do, which, uh, do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took what? The cup also. We have two things that are specified. The bread, which is unleavened bread. We know that because of the history which Paul points to here in the Last Supper, that they were gathered together for the Passover feast, and the bread that they had there was unleavened bread. And they had fruit of the vine, which would have been new wine, which is essentially grape juice. And says that this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, what, drink the cup or eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Two things, eat the bread and drink the cup. That's what's been described here. That's what Paul is, is reiterating to them, that the Lord's Supper consists of unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. So what does that exclude? Everything else. You look back over in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, back there at verse 16, it says, Is not the cup of blessing uh, which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we are so many by one body, we all partake of the same uh, or the one bread. The point here is that they come together to take the Lord's Supper and share in the body and the blood of Christ. That's distinct from going house to house and sharing their meals um, together with gladness in their hearts. That's different from that. Perfectly fine. We eat meals together all the time. Perfectly fine. It's great for us to come together uh, with other brethren <clears throat> and share a meal. But it's not the Lord's Supper. And there's nothing other, other emblems included in the Lord's Supper. No roasted lamb, no bitter herbs, nothing else that's, that would have been with the Passover feast that's included in the Lord's Supper. It's the bread and through the vine. So, let's further distinguish between the two, which is important in understanding this. Back over to chapter 11. As Paul is correcting the Corinthian brethren, because what they were doing was they were indeed conflating the two. They were putting common meal and in with the, the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, and they were seemingly calling that the Lord's Supper. Because in the way Paul corrects them, it seems that's what's going on. In 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 17, it says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worst. Uh, but, for, but for in the first place, when you come together as a church, so that's recognition of the ecclesia coming together, called out into an assembly um, to do the certain things that have been prescribed. When you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and I in part believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. So there's obviously there's, 
divisions, there's cliques within the church here in Corinth, and things are going on that Paul is correcting them for. Verse 20 says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Why? For in your eating, each one takes his supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Verse 22 is key. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What will I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So you see what's going on. They, they were just, they were feasting. And, and by the time some got there, because they hadn't waited on one another, there was nothing else for, for them to eat. And some had obviously imbibed in the wine a little too much and they were drunk. So that's why Paul draws this distinction out and says, this is the Lord's Supper, the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. The rest of this is just common meal that you have put into this ritual that does not belong there. And again, verse 22 is key. Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? You know, the Lord's Supper, we don't come here to eat and drink. We don't come here to fill our bellies. We come here, the, the emblems that we partake, the eating that we do is the body and the blood of our Lord. That's what the church comes together to do. It doesn't come together to, the, the church doesn't come together to have a meal. Now, we might come together as Christians and share a meal, but that's not the coming together of the church. That's not the work of the church. The church is defined and distinguished between these two things because of these kinds of passages that we read here. Look also with me over in uh, Romans chapter 14. We can also understand this by what Paul says here in Romans as he is spelling out the, 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 the differences in one's conscience and why they're doing things out of a conscience. And if that's not transgressing God's law, then it's okay, it's okay for them to do that and, and not try to hold on to them something that's, that Scripture hasn't uh, placed upon them. And then there's a problem here about things, about eating of meats and uh, the things that, have, that are going on here. And again, there's a confusion of, of all that. And I love the way Paul clarifies this in verse 17 of Romans 14. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when it comes down to it, eating and drinking... <laughs> That, that's not the kingdom of God. That's not why we, we come together. That's not, we don't celebrate a feast. We come together to take the Lord's Supper. We have houses in which to eat. If we want to eat, that's where we do that. We don't come together as the church to eat, to share a common meal as part of our worship to God. One other verse here. The end of verse 15 here in Romans uh, 14 helps to, to crystallize this as well. Paul says, Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, again, in the context here, he's talking about the, uh, people having problems with the things that they are eating uh, out of a sake of conscience. But the sentiment holds in this and understanding, don't do something unauthorized by God that's going to separate 
this one whom Jesus died for, is it really worth that? Is it really worth us uh, infighting and disagreeing about these kinds of things and if, if it costs someone their soul? So what's a good remedy for that? The remedy for that is to do what God says. He expects his commandments to be followed. There is no room for our think-sos. There is no room for the precepts of men. And when God says something and, and identifies something that we are to do, then that excludes everything else. Those are some very simple tenets that we can follow. And if we'll stick to that, then we'll avoid a lot of this kind of controversy and we'll avoid uh, souls being lost over the color of the carpet. And the work of the church, as Paul says here, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, that's where we need to be focused. Yeah, we have a wonderful building here that's been maintained for many, many years, but the color of the carpet's immaterial. What is material? Singing, praying, taking the Lord's Supper, lay by, laying by and storing, listening to God's Word. That's what we come together to do as the church. All these other things help to facilitate that, but let's not, let's not lose our souls over those things. Let's not lose our souls over meals and instruments and music and, and benevolence. Let's do what God says. And we'll be okay. I want to leave you with this. We quoted from another part of Romans 15, but I want to read, leave you with this this morning. Romans 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let, e let each of us please his neighbor for his good and his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but it, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you uh, to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll call your attention to that verse right there in the middle of verse 4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Reminds me of, of what we're talking about here. We've, we took the example of those things that have been written in earlier times of, of David, those examples of David, and made that application. And the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, because we recognize and, and are encouraged by those, those words of old, it helps to inform us uh, of what we have going forward. We might have hope. The same God that dictated how he was to be worshipped under the law of Moses dictates how he is to be worshipped under the law of Christ. So we can look at the, 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 those things written in earlier times and, and get the instructions uh, and the applications that are there. Now we have to make that distinction and understand that's the law of Moses. Jesus came, he fulfilled the law of Moses. We're no longer under the tutor. 
whatever was written in earlier times is written for our instruction. Would that take those applications and apply it to the law of Christ? Because that's, that's the law that we're under. God expects his commandments to be followed. Our think-sos are of no account. And whatever he says, he excludes everything else. So let's put that to good use in our own worship, in our own Christian lives, as we lead them each and every day. I hope this, these two lessons have been encouraging to you. It comes down to authority. It comes down to respecting who God is and respecting him enough to do what he says. It's really as simple as that. He does these things for us for our good. He doesn't need us, need us to worship him. He wants us to worship him. He's given us all the tools that we need. He's given us clear instructions on how to do it. He hasn't left it up to our own devices. He's told us what to do. And he expects us to respect him enough to do that. To simply do what he says, no more and no less.